0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: To celebrate the birth of Prince Edward and the 30th anniversary of his accession, in April 1538, Henry VIII had work started on a new palace an architectural extravaganza named to indicate that it was to be without equal. None such or non-such. It was a labour of love. No expense was spared. Henry had the medieval manor house and village of Cuddington knocked down so that he could build a vast royal hunting forest. And he lavished nine years and over £24,000 the equivalent of about £7.4 million today on its construction, although the palace was still unfinished at the time of his death. Although Nonsuch remained in royal use for another 130 years, in 1670, Charles II granted it to one of his mistresses, Barbara Villiers, Countess of Castlemaine, and before a dozen years had passed, she had the palace demolished and its materials sold off. Rumour has it to pay off her gambling debts. The exact footprint of the Tudor Palace, therefore, was unknown until local librarian John Dent took on the challenge. And in the summer of 1959, the palace was excavated by a huge team of volunteers and workers led by archaeologist Martin Biddle, now CBE, FBA, FSA, and Emeritus Fellow at Hertford College, Oxford, where he was Professor of Medieval Archaeology. I'm delighted that Professor Biddle joins me today to talk about this palace that was once one of the great wonders of the world and rediscovering it in those heady days of the hot summer of 1959. Professor Biddle, it is an absolute joy to see you again. We met almost a decade ago when we were up at the Moor, which is a palace that belonged to Henry VIII for anyone else who's listening, and it was... Wonderful to get to know you then. And so I'm absolutely delighted that we get to speak about this literally groundbreaking work you did in discovering nonsuch.
2: That's a great pleasure. I'm always happy to talk about nonsuch.
1: I have to reveal my bias as well. This is my area. I went to a primary school near... Cuddington. As a young teenager, I went to Nonsuch High School for Girls. My mother was secretary of the Friends of Nonsuch for years. I've walked in Nonsuch Park more times than I can say, so I am very biased. I'm very, very interested in Nonsuch Palace.
2: I must have met your mother several times then, obviously.
1: (laughs) Yes. What was the state of knowledge about Nonsuch Palace before you began the excavation?
2: Well, really, it all depended on the single engraving. Uh, after Hofnagel by Hoggenberg in a great uh, late 16th century printed book. There were other pictures too, but they weren't very well known. There was a watercolour. There's a very remarkable engraving, actually in many ways The most important for actually understanding the palace in the top right-hand corner of John Speed's map of Surrey of 1610 or 1611. So that's a very important sort of three-dimensional drawing, looking from the south, at the south front of the palace, with its decorations and towers, and then over that towards the inner court, and then even a bit beyond the inner court towards the outer court. It's uh, somewhat naive. But it's a very, very important engraving, and that's the best one we have for actually understanding what the palace looked like, or at least how it worked. What it looked like is probably best seen in the Hofnagel drawings.
1: I didn't ask you this in advance, but hopefully it's not too left field. What were the objectives then in the excavation? What were you hoping to find out?
2: Well, the palace has never been lost in people's imagination because there are engravings of it, very famous ones, of course, one by, in John Speed's map and another one in a great printed book of the later 16th century. We knew what it looked like, and there were written descriptions from many foreign visitors which described extraordinary pictures and Latin mottos or identifications with them. But that's all that was known, and uh, it could be worked out roughly. There were two square courts, and that was it. And uh, that was nonsuch, not what that which no equal has.
1: So, how did you get involved in the dig? What was your route into working on this extraordinary piece of archaeology?
2: That was quite straightforward, really. I was a pupil at Merchant Taylor's School in Hertfordshire, and not far from the school, half a mile or so on the other side of the railway line, there was the site of the Manor of the Moor, which was another actually medieval manor house, but it was an important Tudor manor house too, to which kings and queens quite often went. And we got interested in that. The School Archaeological Society actually excavated the manor of the moor between 1952 and 1955. And I remember I wrote it up and finished that right up on the day before I left the army on the 2nd of February, 1956. That's amazing.
1: And so this experience of having worked on the moor, Set you up for nonsuch? Yes,
2: it did, because it meant one wanted to know what other palaces Henry had. And of course, it was a very short journey to finding out and had a place called nonsuch. And uh, there was no problem about where it was. It was always known. And it's even marked on the earliest ordnance survey maps of the 19th century. It was always known where it was. And so from that interest, um, with the school's work on the Manor of the Moor. It was really a short jump to say, well, what about this other extraordinary palace of Henry's? Shortly after leaving school and after serving for two years in the army, he dug it up.
1: We'll come back to that excavation in just a second. Should we talk a bit about the palace and things like its location? W-
2: why was it located where it was? That's actually a very good question. And I don't think I can answer it except to say that it's immediately adjacent to the great road leading from London towards the Southwest, going through what we today call Ewell and Epsom and so forth. And it was just a short, half a mile journey by a new road off that road, just before we got to Ewell, which led to the site chosen for the palace. Exactly why that site was chosen, I don't think we know. It is obviously very suitable. It was on slightly rising ground with the Surrey Hills behind it to the south, looking north, excellent communications to the main road, as I say, either to London or to the southwest. So it was a good site, but I think it was probably local landowners who probably knew that the king or perhaps were told that the king was looking for another out-of-town house. Somehow or other, he was persuaded to do that. Others may have better ideas about how, but exactly how the site was chosen, I'm really not sure.
1: Well, there's a good hypothesis. What were Henry's ambitions in building it? Was he seeking, as some have said, to rival François I's Fontainebleau? You know, it's called such. Why is that? Yes.
2: I think that's a very good parallel. In fact, it was obvious that Francis I was building some pretty splendid palaces. And somebody, I doubt it was the king, but it might have been, advised the king, well, there is this amazing possibility you could build a palace that outmatched Fontainebleau. What about it? It's much smaller, of course, and uh, more remote, really, from the centers, a bit more remote from the centers of power, really, than Fontainebleau. But it was a new site and it was possible for the king to have built whatever it was his advisers advised. And what they advised was a palace like none Other.
1: So work began on the 22nd of April, 1538, which was the 30th anniversary of Henry VIII's accession.
2: Very good date.
1: Yes, auspicious, one might say. Do we know who was responsible for building it? Because this is before we get... Named architects, really, isn't it?
2: Uh, Yes, that's quite right. But there were people who had been working for the French King Francis I uh, at Fontainebleau, for example. And uh, some of these had come to work for Henry. And I think he had a considerable team of both Italian and French people around him who could devise a new house. And the plan, of course, is completely English. It is just two square courts just exactly like an Oxford or Cambridge College. You go in through the north gate, you cross a courtyard, you go in through an even grander gate, you get to the inner courtyard, and around it on all sides, certainly east, west and south, are gardens. And so it was nothing unusual in terms of its plan. So the question is, of course, why was it non-such? And what persuaded Henry to build this place that might be called that which no equal hath?
1: Well, I suppose, That is what your excavation started to tell you about. But before we get to that, what do we know of Henry's use of the palace? I mean, after it was built, did he go there much?
2: Not very much, no. Construction began on the 30th anniversary of Henry's accession in 1538, and it was really barely finished, it probably was finished by the time of Henry's death in January 1547, but only barely so. And he visited it two or three times, the last time actually, late in 1546. So he will have seen it in a pretty finished form, I think. But obviously somebody had suggested to him that it should be unlike anything else that had ever been built. And it was both absolutely English with its two courtyards and its two gatehouses. But the inner court was decorated with stuccos, high-relief stuccos, looking down from all four sides onto the inner court. And the outside walls of that inner court were also decorated by high-relief stuccos looking onto the gardens. But sadly, although we know a great deal about the stuccos that look down onto the inner court, Almost no visitor wrote anything about the ones that looked out onto the gardens, which were at least as grand and splendid, but they're shown to us, particularly the South Front in the famous watercolor by Hothmarkel and in John Speed's drawing on the map of Surrey, top right-hand corner, the map of Surrey. But apart from those little sketches as it were, we know very little about them. Whereas the ones looking down onto the inner court were described by a number of people, and each was identified by an inscription, and so we know quite a lot about them.
1: And the use of stucco in itself is presumably a foreign technique, possibly drawing on the skills of foreign craftsmen, one would have thought.
2: Oh, particularly Nicholas Bellin of Modena, I think, who is the Italian really most important in the introduction of this style and this kind of material in England. He worked for Francis I at Fontainebleau and on the Great Gallery there and on other buildings now lost. And then he came to England in um, late 1538, early 1537, and um, he proceeded to quite clearly draw up a series of proposals for what could be a palace like none other and exactly how he worked with his english colleagues who may well have been a bit suspicious of this italian coming from france or not we don't know but at any rate, it was his the building was entirely english around two square courtyards each entered by a great gatehouse just like one surviving at hampton court for example but when you got in the inner court all the walls around you carried high relief white stuccoes all identified by inscriptions and then the same about which we know a great deal because they're described. And on the outside walls of that inner court, too, were similar stuccoes, which we can just glimpse. If you look at enlargements of a painting of the palace from the northeast and another one from the northwest, both in the 17th century, you can just see they went onto the garden walls, too. And the most famous view of the palace, I suppose, in a sense, is John Speed's view of the palace. It's looking north, and um, it's in the top right-hand corner of John Speed's map of Surrey of 1611. And it shows the whole of the south front, uh, framed by two great towers, with a bay half tower in the middle, and with the whole front decorated by figures. Uh, you can't identify the figures from, from the drawing, but it's quite clear that they are the kind of high-relief stuccoes, of which hundreds of fragments were found in the excavation some of them perhaps from the outside, some of them probably from the inside walls of the court. But it's the inside walls, the, the walls of the court, which the visitor coming through the outer gate and then across the outer court and through the inner gate, just like in a Cambridge College, for example, suddenly found himself in this inner courtyard with these astonishing stucco figures decorating the first and uh, attic floors, as it were, of the inner court, looking down on him from every side. Uh, quite astonishing.
1: And what is also astonishing is that this palace without equal didn't survive. The reason you had to excavate is because not only did Henry not see it finished, but the palace itself does not survive him by 200 years. (laughs) So what was the life of the palace after Henry? How long was it occupied?
2: Oh, it, it remained a royal palace and it was used intermittently as all royal palaces were used, because the king or queen later, Elizabeth, went round from palace to palace so they could be seen and meet members of their people. And so Edward VI, particularly, and then very much Elizabeth went to Nonsuch quite a lot. And partly because of that, I think, but also just because it was so extraordinary, many foreign visitors visited Nonsuch, probably when the king or the queen, more particularly was not there and went around and they had their notebooks or their attendants had their notebooks in their hand and they wrote down the subjects and indeed they wrote that down the Latin mottoes and so forth which identified them and a lot of these survive I mean quite a lot of them survive some of them are very don't tell you very much but others tell you every single motto for example those identifying the stuccos on the inward looking walls of the inner court so we do really know a lot about it although Nothing survives above ground level.
1: And eventually the palace was demolished. And this was quite a systematic piece of work,
2: wasn't it? Well, it was flattened, absolutely flat. And I don't doubt the building materials were simply sold off by the people who were engaged to demolish the palace and were presumably used. And I think sometimes time people think they can see fragments in houses in Epsom, and dual, But they absolutely flattened it. They, in some places they took out all the foundations too. So if archaeologists are faced with a building which has been so demolished that even the foundations are gone, they are left with robber trenches. Trenches from which the stones and the foundations of the walls have been taken away for reuse. And archaeologists can identify those and from that work out the plan. And oh, perhaps half of the foundations of non-such perhaps less, were actually robbed out and the rest were left in position. So it was quite an easy job to excavate and to get its entire plan, which we did in the summer of 1959, a glorious summer with only one wet day.
1: Yes, it must have been such a race against that weather, thinking this is going to go at any time. Let's talk about the excavation and how it was, I suppose, on a practical level to be involved in something on this scale. I mean, well, it seems um, it seems striking yeah. for a start, just in terms of the sheer physical effort.
2: <laughs> well, of course, non-such and the images of non-such have always been known to people who live and are interested in such things in that part of England, Surrey, and Yule and Epsom. And there's a the non-such school for girls, for example. The name has lived on in many different ways. So it was very easy to persuade the non-such. Park Committee to permit an excavation of the site, and indeed they seemed to welcome it very much and provided to go with the non such muwell parishes with every help we could have
1: I suppose it would have involved a lot of people i mean there's a lot that would have been a- a huge amount of soil, a huge amount of rubble, <laughs> a huge amount of tree roots and everything to excavate.
2: Well, there were very few trees, uh, fortunately, on the eastern half of the palace, which was under grass. You couldn't see the walls, but you could see that it there was an avenue leading off the London Road. And as you walk along it, the ground rises, and that is actually where the outer court starts. And then you walk across where the outer court would have been and up again and you have another great sort of flat area, which is where the inner court was. And you could see this very easily under the grass on the east side of the avenue. The west side of the avenue is covered with light trees, not massive, great trees. And it would have been much more difficult to see. But um, walking down that avenue, which was the original approach road to the palace from the London Road, I'm say, it was quite easy to see exactly where it lay. And the local librarian, John Dent, uh, librarian of Epsom Newell Borough Library, was the man who really was very, very keen on this building and wrote a splendid book on it, uh, The Quest for Nonsuch by John Dent, published after the excavation. And he was a, a major figure in persuading, and they didn't take much persuasion, I think, the local authority, whose ground it was, to permit the excavation to take place. And that's what happened.
1: On Gone Medieval from History Hit, we're here to spoil you with the
2: biggest names. Chinggis Khan. The thing that really galvanised his wars of conquest was his belief that he had been given a mandate to have dominion over the entire planet.
1: We explore new archaeological finds. After the Viking Age, lots of medieval artefacts coming out of the site as well.
2: And delve into the lives of those you might never have heard of. He's not a bad and evil king like King John.
1: I'm Dr. Kat Jarman.
2: And I'm Matt Lewis. From surviving everyday life in the Middle
1: Ages to dynasty-shattering events, Gone Medieval is the place to quench your thirst for history. Subscribe now to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, host of Dan Snow's History at podcast here. History isn't just dates and facts. It's about the incredible stories that shape our world. Three times a week on my podcast, my expert guests and I bring you extraordinary stories of heroism, discovery, mystery, and power. Expect tales of lost tombs, daring escapes, power hungry rulers, and those determined to bring them all down. If you're a history lover or just looking for a good tale, you'll want to check out Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And I suppose it also costs a lot of money. Somebody's got to pay for all of those people.
2: Not really. (laughs) <laughs> they were students from Oxford and Cambridge, mainly from Cambridge, where i have just at the end of my first year reading archaeology and anthropology, but from Cambridge and from Oxford, and of course, from, from local families too, and from local schools. I don't think many people under 16 worked on the excavation because it was quite hard physical work, and it was very rigorously controlled so that... Everything was kept very, very clean. And as the patterns gradually emerged, very rapidly, we've hit the first wall, I think, at 11.30 on the first Monday, more or less exactly where John Dent had predicted from the rises in the ground that could be seen on the Park Road under side where it would be. So we knew very, very quickly where we were. And the part that lay under the grass on the east side of the avenue, was almost completely excavated. Air photographs of it show that it was excavated in a very um, classical archaeological way, the kind pioneered by Mortimer Wheeler and uh, very, very strictly controlled and kept extremely clean and laid out a whole grid of squares. And uh, gradually the palace emerged during this excavation, very, very rapidly, as I say, predicted precisely to be where it was. And uh, that took us all together about uh, 13 weeks. It's amazing. So it's where John Dent
1: expected it was going to be. You could see it in the contours of the land. But as this exciting archaeological work started, what did it tell you about the palace that you didn't know?
2: Well, first of all, I suppose confirmed what one had expected, which was the plan of the palace, conformed exactly in a very simple to what well, one would be expected from Hampton Court or St. James's, or one of those great Judah royal houses. It was, in fact, just two square courtyards entered by the North Gatehouse, first courtyard, the South Gatehouse, second courtyard, and the Great South Front, which was flanked by two enormous towers to east and west, which gives us the famous view of non which is known for many engravings and so forth. And which gave people an idea what it was like. So, nothing that emerged from the excavation of the plan of the palace was in any way surprising. It was an absolutely classic example of a not very large Tudor royal palace on a simple two courtyard gatehouse. And the extraordinary element of it, of course, was the decorations. Of the inner court.
1: You've written extensively about the archaeological finds and thought about them as architectural and domestic, so we'll do the same. Do the architectural finds from this dig add to our information about the splendour of the palace?
2: Oh, yes, completely, because they are the evidence that shows that it was the most remarkable early Renaissance building ever built in England. The stuccos, high relief stuccos, with figures, I mean, legs and so forth might be almost fully round from the background stucco. Not always. I mean, they're attached, obviously, they fall off. But um, these stuccos are absolutely classical. No question of their being gothic, as they were, I-C-K, at all. They were beautifully moulded by particularly Nicholas Bellin of Moderna and the team of French men whose names we don't on the whole know who came with him from Fontainebleau where he'd been working and perhaps from other royal buildings in France.
1: What size were the stucco panels because I've seen the pictures of Nonsuch and I did gone to see the model that the friends of Nonsuch have at Nonsuch Mansion but it's hard to get a sense from that how big they were. They're
2: about three and a half feet wide and sort of five to six feet tall so they're big rectangular panels. And the figures on them, they're never life size, but they're quite large. I mean, half-life size is perfectly possible. And some of the figures were in very high relief. I mean, almost detached from the background and, and held when we see the broken fragments. You can see that sometimes they were molded around iron um, elements which held the projecting legs and arms and shoulders and heads more firmly in position. But from the outside, they were entirely white stucco which was whitewashed white as well and those panels were each of them framed by borders of carved and gilded slate and this was quite extraordinary the slate is it was very very delicately and beautifully carved mainly with intersecting the bands of what we call gioche, which is the circles intersecting and picked out in gold so that it was very splendid. And some of, of the stucco panels were even more elaborate and had uh, coats of arms and so forth on a rather large scale. But since the fragments are all really quite small, I mean, I suppose the very largest is possibly well, 14 inches by 12. And most of the fragments are much smaller. And most of them are simply guillage patterns or you know, braiding patterns, if you like, which form the black and gilt, of course, Patterns are picked out in gold, are for the white stuccos. So they don't detract from the stuccos at all. But in certain places, the uh, carved gilded slate was uh, really very dramatic in its own right. But I'm afraid, apart from particularly Speed's drawing, uh, we don't really know how the slate panels were used except as frames. And that's fully supported by the many fragments we found in the excavation, which can be seen today in the local museum.
1: I never had any idea that they were that big. I've always heard about the stucco panels of non-such, but I hadn't got a sense of that. I was thinking, I don't know, A4 or something. I hadn't realised that they were this
2: vast. I mean, (laughs) 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 i I'm probably wrong there. But really, I mean, they are three and a half. I haven't got the figures exactly in my mind, Remember, they're sometimes three and a half feet wide and about five and a half feet high. the panels are. And then you've got the borders, and the borders are about 10 inches thick, and they have these running panels of picked out in gold on the carved slate, and then molded borders to either side of the more elaborate slates, and then you have the great white, for which these are the frames.
1: So suddenly we start to understand why someone like the Rector of Cheam, Anthony Watson, would say he was struck senseless by the splendour of the scene because you've got these almost 3D Renaissance sculptures on this grand scale and so many of
2: them. That's very well put. And you say almost 3D, I think, yes, half D if you like I mean, they are really, they can be very high relief indeed, Uh, and many of them were. But we can only judge from the 1,500 or so fragments that were recovered from the excavation of the thousands there must once have been. Goodness knows where most of the rubble from the demolition of Nonsuch went. I don't think anybody knows the answer to that. Presumably it was carted off the foundations and so forth around Epsom and Newell, and presumably from time to time elements of it are found. But there was a great deal left in the robber trenches where the foundations had been so that we have thousands of fragments of the slate and uh, of the stucco.
1: I'm thinking about comparisons. On Hampton Court, there are those wonderful terracotta roundels. And I suppose people, therefore, nearby may have seen that degree of Renaissance figural sculpture But to see the entire palace, or at least this entire courtyard, covered with this sculpture must have been breathtaking.
2: Yes, I think it was. And your parallel with Hampton Court is very good because there were at least three terracotta roundels at Nonsuch, which are essentially identical to the terracottas. I mean, we've only got fragments, but they're very probably made by the same people as the terracottas, which do still survive at Hampton Court. But there's nothing like the stucco work that I know of surviving anywhere else. It would be quite fascinating to know if there is anywhere, unrecognized, as it were, a high-relief panel of stucco work at, I can't believe it's really the case, but at, for example, St. James's. But you never know. I think it would have been C. But otherwise, the non-such ones are unique, as are their slate, gilded slate borders to them.
1: What do the domestic finds in the excavation tell us about life in the palace?
2: Very little, except in the very last years, when it was owned by George Lord Barclay and his family. And it looks as though a part of their family may have lived in part of the palace, perhaps in the outer court for a short while. And around the edges of the palace are what we call gardero pits. And they are cesspits, frankly. They are brick-built, stone-brick and stone-built pits, which have little bricked-up openings on the outside from which they could be opened and dug out from time to time, but otherwise were filled by loos on the first and second floor, higher up. And everything fell down into these pits. And what also fell down was a very large quantity of domestic material from the last use of the palace. Obviously, these pits must be very stinky. And I imagine that during the lifetime of the palace, they were regularly cleaned out. But the last lot were not cleaned out, which deals with the contents of those pits all the way around the outside of the palace. It's material of the 1670s and 1680s. There are a few pieces which are older, but mainly it's mid to late seventh, mid to third quarter of the 17th century domestic material thrown away by the members of the Barclay family who was still occupying the palace. And when they left in the early 1680s, nobody bothered to clear out the last lot. I think when they took over, probably the Gardner Pits were clear because we didn't find any with 16th, 17th century material. Only these, we found many that were absolutely empty and had been cleaned out and never reused. But the ones that had been reused were all third quarter of the 17th century and wonderful material. They made the hell of that big book I just showed
1: Yes, you've done an amazing piece of work on all of the things that were found and fascinating as it is. It doesn't, as you say, tell us about its Henrician life, but we can look at an inventory if we want to know about that.
2: <laughs> yes, to a certain extent one can and compare the inventories with the palaces for which the sites still survive, like Hampton Court and interpret them and so on.
1: Were there fewer material finds, therefore, than you hoped for? Were you thinking that maybe there would be cesspits from the Tudor period, or did you know going into it that there wouldn't really be?
2: No, we didn't know at all. Had we carefully thought about it, perhaps one would have thought, well, it's most likely that it was material from the last occupation, and we know when that was, which is what it turned out to be. The fill of the Gardero pits was extremely rich, and a lot of the, I mean, it's pottery, usually broken, but sometimes almost complete. Laughs almost always broken, but some very splendid pieces, indeed, which could be stuck together and all illustrated in the great book. It's really all the kind of stuff you might find from a wealthy third quarter of the... Post, post-fire, perhaps, post century material of any great house, I like Coarse pots and fine pots, beautiful glasses, everyday glasses, everyday wine bottles and magnificent tankards. all sorts all of why they got into the guard
1: Wonderful material resources to learn about that period. Can I ask you about the fact that after those 12 or 13 weeks of the excavation in the hot summer of 1959, the decision was made to fill the site in again and hide the foundations. At one level, I feel this must have been heartbreaking. Why was it? <laughs> How did you feel about it?
2: I think it was absolutely unavoidable because the foundations at that level, where they were not just robber trenches from which the foundations themselves were have been taken up, were mortared brick and chalk, and to a certain extent flint, which would have suffered terribly in, in even a single frost, which would just have broken up. They would have to have been capped with cement in the way in which the Ministry of Public Building and Works, the Old Ministry of Works, has done for Many Roman sites like Corstopitum on the Roman wall, for example, and up there, of course, most of the walls are solid stone, and so you only need to keep them properly cemented together, but with the chalk at such, it would all have broken up in a single winter, and the bricks would have followed pretty quickly. So all you could have done would have been to cap the outline of all the walls with cement, and then lay the grass around those so that you had a grassed courtyard surrounded by the walls and the outlines of the gatehouses with their octagonal towers rising from a lower outer court to a higher inner court and then the great towers to the south front. And it might indeed have been quite impressive. And I think a lot of local people were very disappointed at the time that that wasn't done. Obviously, I'm drawn in several different ways. Because if you walk there today, you walk along the avenue, you go up a little rise, and that's the outer gatehouse. You walk across the flat, you go up another little rise, that's the inner gatehouse, and then you're in the inner court. But there's nothing to indicate other than a couple of obelisks, uh, exactly where you are. I think pe- local people were sad about that, but I think the actual cost, not so much, I think, of laying it out, but of keeping it in regular repair from our winters, which almost certainly would have meant some repair every year, might well have been quite difficult, and the local authority clearly decided not to do that. Having said that, of course, they could have done other things. They could. There are some markers showing where the outer gatehouse, inner gatehouse, and so forth, uh, beside the road. So you know from the road you're walking down the centre of the palace, roughly where you are. I suppose that there could have been markers out in the grass field to the east or left, showing where the towers of the south front were and so forth. But on the right you see it's in low woodland and it would have been very difficult. So in the end, the decision was taken simply to have a few simple markers showing where the palace was. Anything more elaborate I think would have caused a great deal of regular maintenance which I think it might have been quite difficult. To I'm sorry about it, of course. And maybe people more used to laying out these things would have better ideas than I have. But the fact that half of it is under woodland anyway, which nobody presumably would want to clear away, and then there's a tarmac road down the middle of it, not a road, but a lane, and then open green fields to the other side where you can see the humps and the bumps, which indicate where the outfall was, where the iniqual was.
1: It certainly makes sense archaeologically. I mean, I'm still of a view that It might be wonderful to have a little bit more what they now call interpretation put there to tell people as they're going for their walks with their
2: dogs what they're walking over, but I'm somewhat biased, as I say. I wouldn't want to disagree with that. I think myself that some careful thought could be put into having some plans, for example, before you get to the outer gatehouse saying, you know, here on, on this path, the red dot is you, and now you're going to past the outer gatehouse, and I think if it was done carefully without being very intrusive I think it could be very informative but that's not been done so far I would support (laughs) it if it were
1: we might have to start a campaign Nonsuch was as we've described a very unusual building certainly unusual in the history of English architecture at least in its decoration if not in its form what do you think we should make of it in the end what should our estimation of it be
2: I think that's a profound question and a very good one. And the question is, of course, who thought it up? Was it the king himself, perfectly capable, of course, Henry VIII, of having come to that sort of idea? Or did he say, well, I'd like to have something, you know, which perhaps looks a bit more, like mm-hmm. what are you going to do about it for this? And perhaps that's what happened. At any rate, we've got what we've got, I certainly think. It could be more interestingly displayed without being intrusive. I think the vital thing in that beautiful work is not to have intrusive great monuments, but there are ways in which it could be made much more interesting for the visitor, I think. And and I, I would hope that the local authority might think more seriously about that.
1: Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me about this wonderful and crucial piece of work that you did and that you have done subsequently in your writings on non-such. And I urge people to turn to those if they want to find out more about all the wonderful archaeology and all those wonderful finds that came out of it. But thank you so much for taking the time to introduce us to its discovery or rediscovery.
2: Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. I would suggest people begin with John Dent's book, The Quest for Nonsuch, which is a great read, takes it right through the whole operation of finding it and digging it up, and then at some of the other books.
1: That is characteristically generous review. It is a very good book, and I also recommend it to people who want to know more. Thank you for your time, Professor Biddle.
2: Thank you very much indeed. it been lovely talking to you.
1: Thank you to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and researcher Esther Arnott. And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you haven't already done so, do sign up to our weekly newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, so that you never miss out on the history you love. There are details in the notes below this podcast. And please rate this podcast wherever you listen, now including on Spotify. And please send me your comments and suggestions for future podcasts via our Twitter feed at NotJustTudors or by email NotJustTheTudors at HistoryHit.com.
0: When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes, like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time